Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Praise God. Good afternoon, everybody. It's good to see you, and it's good to be seen by you, no doubt, here to quote Shabazz. Amen. And um, what a blessing it is to be in the place of grace this afternoon, um, appreciating that God's grace is upon us. And I'm sure throughout um, our weeks, we encounter God in such a way that we could all give testimony if we were actually mindful and, and keen to pay attention to what the Lord is doing. And um, what a blessing it is to know that God is present, that he is with us, that Emmanuel, God with us, has come and made God known, revealed to us his person, and through faith in him, brought us into relationship with the living God. What a blessing that is. And what a reality is that is for our lives. And um, it's, a, it's been a real blessing as we um, have been going through our series, present. Um, have any of you guys been noticing any sort of change to the, the, the visual over each week? Well, I've done it myself. No, no, I didn't do it myself. The colors? No, it's not, not to do with the colors. No. The, the cross. It's, it's <laughs> the cross is breaking up. It's bursting forth. <laughs> well, we are, we're unwrapping God's great gift. And so that's what's happening. As each week proceeds, more of the wrapping comes off. You see? Hold tight, Joel, Brent, all the design team. Bless the Lord. <laughs> Praise God. Subtle but significant, eh? Because we rejoice in this opportunity to unpack the gospel. You know, they say that a dog is not just for Christmas. And we believe that Jesus is not just for Christmas, if that makes sense. And I'm not comparing him to being a dog, obviously. (laughs) Obviously. But Jesus is not just for Christmas. And it's important that we unpack what ultimately is the gospel, the message of the gospel to us that is encapsulated in the person of Christ in the Christmas story. And so we looked at the fact that God was present. The eternal God spoke through the prophets in times past, making his presence known, revealing the coming of the Messiah, our Savior, that God was here present, actually on this earth, in the person of Christ. That God is now present, as Pastor P so ably shared with us um, last week, with regards to the fact that God is present by his spirit in his people. We are his representatives, his agents. Furthermore, we are his hands and his feet as he is the head of the body. 
And through us and the work of his spirit, he makes his presence known. And yet, having said this, our focus today is on the fact that God is soon present. God is soon present. And actually, Jesus Christ is coming back. He is going to return. Amen. And you know, it is something that is that ought to be a cause of rejoicing, which it definitely is for those who believe. And yet, it will be a, a cause for many to try and run at the face of his presence when he returns. And so, let's consider why that is. Um, I ask that you bear with me today, because I've actually jumped in for Neil, who was going to be sharing this session, and obviously in view of events, um, is, has not been able to do so, and yet we thank the Lord for his presence by his spirit granting us grace. So let's pray as we prepare to consider God soon present. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to your own name. Lord, you've said in the Psalms that there, is, there are none who put their trust in you who will be put to shame. You will not allow that to happen because you are the faithful God. He who is the ancient of days, the rock of ages, you are unchanging the same yesterday, today, and forever. May our hearts be captivated by your love. May our hearts by, be captivated, Lord, by you. And especially as we consider the return of Christ, the fact that he is soon to come. Open our hearts, Lord. Speak to our hearts, Lord. May your gospel resonate through every part of our being as we allow you to minister to us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. God's soon present. Jesus is coming again. In Isaiah 40, verse 10, it says, Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back to reward. Now, we all like rewards, right? Some of us, you know what? I've had beef with T-Mobile over the years. I can't lie. <laughs> can't lie. Because I, was, I started with T-Mobile when, before they was T-Mobile, what were they called? Right. Before they were one-to-one, -one, what were they called? All right. Who knows? Thank you, bruv. Old school heads, Mercury Communications, you know. <laughs> That's what they used to be called. All right. Share my age. So, you know, if anybody knows my number, I've got an 07956 number. Original Mercury customer. <laughs> Amen. Same number since I was like, I don't know, 19 or something like that. 
And I'm like, I'm a loyal customer. As my family, I've had, I've, I've had lines. All of them have been with T-Mobile, same account and so on. So when it comes to upgrade now, I'm looking for some loyalty love. I'm looking for some loyalty rewards. I'm a liar, bruv. Listen, I'm like, I've been, I've been with T-Mobile probably before you as a customer service agent was even born. Talk to me. Show me some love. I'm looking for some rewards. Some of us in our jobs, we're, we're quite happy as Christmas season comes around because our, our jobs might dish out a bonus. And those of us who work in the public sector feel kind of hard by, hard done by. No bonuses in school, uh, in social services, in teaching. No, no bonuses, huh? We would love some rewards though, wouldn't we? Some loyalty rewards. Some rewards for good service. Just some recognition. We all love rewards. Jesus is coming back to reward. And, you know, even as we're here in the Christmas season considering rewards and, you know, we think about, maybe some of you had this experience growing up. Um, I, I did for probably like one year that I can remember and then after that it was blown out the water. But just the notion of Santa Claus who's going to come and reward the good children. Santa Claus in his red coat and trousers with white piping and his big white beard and then somebody told you that it was an acronym for Satan's Claws and then you was like, okay. <laughs> it was an anagram. Re relocate the words. But the notion of being rewarded is something that everyone can appreciate and even for those children who, you know, are recipients of the, the Santa Claus story. Notice I'm choosing my words very carefully because I know some of you are still looking for him, isn't it? Come Christmas Eve. And also, I don't want to like burst your bubble, innit? <laughs> but one of the things I found interesting was that in the whole concept of Santa Claus and the whole story of Santa Claus, not only does he reward the good children, so if you've been good all year round, then he will reward you, as they say, disclaimer. But also, he has a reward for the bad children. Anybody know what that reward, like, traditionally, historically, that is, is a what? A lump of coal, you know. So that's the reward for those children who haven't been good. Now some people look at God in the same light. That, you know, God is going to reward us for our good works. God is going to reward us for the good that we do. What if God were like this? How would you fare? Would you be rewarded if God was truly going to reward you according to your works? <laughs> would you have Christmas cheer or Christmas coal? 
Some people look at God in this way, that God is going to be one who is going to evaluate our life as Santa Claus evaluates the child's year. And by some reckoning, by some calculation, he's going to reward us. And the reality is that nobody expects to get a bad reward from God, right? I mean, everyone thinks they're a good person, right? Well, it's interesting because when we consider the major narratives of cultures around the world, throughout history we see that they have stories and mythologies and traditions that often have at its root an element of biblical truth that has either become perverted or is the, the, the basis of this, what becomes a parody or a, a, a reconstruction of this biblical truth. In some ways, Santa Claus is a bit like that. Now, for those who don't know, Santa Claus is actually a transliteration um, of, of a, a Nordic term which meant Saint Nicholas. Saint Nicholas. And it speaks of uh, a gentleman in, the, in around the fourth century as a Christian who would go around and he would go to the orphanages and bring gifts to the orphans. And it was said that Saint Nicholas would scurry across the rooftops and drop gifts through the chimney. It was a believer doing good in the community that spawned this tradition of Santa Claus. And yet there is something more by way of association that we're able to gain. And if you turn with me to Romans chapter 2, we'll see that there is actually, again, the, the issue of biblical truth in some ways being reflected in this tradition. But we have to unpack the truth and separate it from the tradition, right? Romans chapter 2, looking at verse 6 to verse 11. He will render each one according to his works. To those who, by patience in well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Hmm. This is an interesting text. One that I wish I had more time to 
work with in terms of chiseling a very crystal clear argument because it needs that. But one thing we do clearly see in this is the sense that Jesus, the soon coming king, will issue rewards. And for some, those will be rewards unto rejoicing. And for others, they will be rewards of retribution. Retribution. A legal term referring to the fact that someone has received the just response to their crimes. And so Jesus will reward. He will render to each one according to his works. Hmm. How would you fare? The rewards spoken of do not speak of rewards that are insignificant. We recognize that the rewards unto rejoicing are such that it's eternal life, glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. But the rewards unto retribution will be wrath and fury in verse 8. Tribulation and distress in verse 9. And so there's going to be no middle ground There's going to be no in-between. It's either going to be great or it's going to be grim. How would you fare? What would your reward be? What does your reward deserve to be? What does anyone's reward deserve to be? Now, the fact that you're here would suggest that you might be inclined to recognize, you know what? My rewards probably won't be good. But at least they might not be that bad. Well, the reality is that we will all receive a reward And it's imperative that we understand the basis upon which we will be rewarded. It's absolutely essential that we know why God is going to reward us with the reward that we receive. And the great blessing is that every single one of us has an opportunity to receive a reward unto rejoicing. Every single one of us. Now in verse 6, we have somewhat of a problem, theologically speaking. It says here that God will render to each one according to his, his deeds or his works, his acts or his actions. 
But I thought that Ephesians 2 tells us that we are saved by faith and not by works. If we're saved by faith, then, wow, how is it that I'm going to be rewarded according to my works? It's an important question because for some of us being unable to answer that question confidently, we will live in fear of Christ's coming. Anytime there is any kind of reference to Jesus coming back, the book of Daniel, later chapters, the book of Revelation, all of it, we'll be, just in, we'll be in pain. We will be scared thinking about the fact that you know what i'm not on point and i don't know how good i have to be in order to get a good reward is it reasonable to assume that somebody might feel that way looking at 2 verse 6 that god is going to re- render each according to their works this is compounded by the fact that in verse 11 it says that god shows no partiality God doesn't turn a blind eye. God doesn't give some people a squeeze. God is just and will treat every single person justly. So we've got to be able to answer, is it faith or is it works? Now, as we say, when it comes to dealing with scripture, context is everything. Context, context, context. And so we're going to back up. And some of you might be thinking, it's interesting how today we were, we've been in chapter 1, going through the first few verses, and then we just leapt to chapter 2 and missed out a whole section. Well, let's look at some highlights that help us to understand the basis of God's rewards which stem from his judgment. Yeah? So um, go back to chapter 1. So last time we left off in verse 7. And I'm going to read through to verse 15 just to summarize that portion. So... Verse 7 onwards. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So in these two verses we see what? He's speaking to who? Believers, Christians. Amen. Yeah? For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may know at last, sorry, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. 
So Paul is writing to Christians who he's got a lot of love for. Can't wait to see them. Wants to share fellowship, encouraging and strengthening one another. Verse 13. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So who does he bring into the picture now? He says, I want to have a harvest among you, as well as the rest of... Okay. So he now brings the, all of the unbelievers into the discussion. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel, to preach the... Come on, we could do better than that. To preach the... To you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Classic verse, Romans 116, 116 unashamed, stand up. We're familiar with this verse. It takes on an even more interesting light as we begin to understand it in context, right? So we see Paul in verse 15 communicating his passion and priority to preach the gospel. To the extent that he's saying, look, I'm not ashamed. You've got guys getting put in prison. I've been put in prison for the sake of the gospel. But you know what? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God. For what? Salvation. To save. To everyone who believes. Salvation comes through faith in the gospel. Paul then begins to explain the problem that the gospel addresses. Paul then begins to explain the problem that the gospel addresses and where the heart of God's beef with man is. God has beef with humanity. Just in case you didn't know. And we see it here in these following verses. Verse 17. For in it, the gospel, my brackets, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous, or as some translations say, the just shall live by... All right. So the just shall live by faith. So, okay, we're feeling better now because there's harmony. Ephesians 2, saved by grace through faith, not by works. Hmm, It corresponds. It matches up. So then, why is God going to reward according to works if the issue is a matter of faith? Paul breaks down an absolute concrete argument which can be summed up in this phrase. Belief dictates behavior. Belief determines behavior. 
And this is the heart of Paul's argument. Let's read on. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the wrath of God, the anger, and yet it's not an anger like our anger, which is merely an, an emotional anger. Someone says something to you, pushes one of your buttons, you draw hard through your nostrils and you're ready to go. <clears throat> You start grinding your teeth, chewing your gums, praying earnestly that the Lord would just command self-control through your members, lest you smite them. <laughs> yeah, I've been there. You could tell, it? But God's, God's wrath ain't like that. God's wrath is a calculated act of the will. It's not a spontaneous emotion. It is a deeply strategic, calculated and considered act of the will. It's actually much deeper than any kind of outburst of emotional wrath that we could appreciate or understand. God's wrath is not to be messed with. And yet it is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so here we have a clear recognition of where people are going wrong. The way in which we respond to the truth. The way in which we handle the truth. So Paul talks about suppressing the truth, holding it down as if trying to drown it to death. He goes on, verse 19. For what can be known? Now again, we see the word known, reference to belief, yeah? About God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Again, an attribute of the mind, our ability to perceive. Have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, God doesn't believe in atheists. It's not just because they can't prove their argument, but it's because he knows that every single individual born onto the face of the planet, based on what we're reading here, has an inbuilt, innate, internal awareness of God's existence. Every single person does. Whether they choose to suppress that truth, stifle and suffocate that truth or not, everyone has it. What is it that contributes to the informing of that awareness? What is it that contributes to a person having an understanding that it relates to God and not just anything that they choose? 
because since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, people have been able to perceive the reality of God's existence. And so we come to the issue of first causes. People want to say there's no God. Well, how do we get here? They lean on the theory of evolution. And yet, it's an unsustainable theory because they have no explanation for how this theory starts. So there was a big bang. Where did the matter come from? Where did the substance come from for the big bang? Well, it was from a supernova or whatever the explanation. And you just keep going, okay, and so where did that come from? And where did that come from? And where did that come from? And where did that come from? Till you get, we don't know. Nobody knows. So it's an argument without basis. And it's one that man has latched onto because it conveniently allows people to escape accountability before the living God. You see, the issue issue of evolution isn't one of science, it's one of justice. People want to avoid accountability. People want to avoid having to to deal with the the knowledge that, you know what, we're all going to stand before God and give an account for our lives. There is one who is greater than us, who is the source of our life, and to whom we will stand before to give an account for what we've done with what he's given. People don't want that. And yet, the end of verse 20, they are without excuse. They are without excuse. No one can say, God, I didn't know you were there. No one. And yet in verse 21, and as we go on, for although they knew God, knew, realm of the mind, the belief, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their, what? Thinking. And their foolish or senseless hearts were darkened. Futile in their thinking to to, to believe that there is no God, as the psalmist said, makes one a fool. And it causes the heart to tend toward darkness. Now, we don't have enough time today to really unpack all of this. It's actually bonkers, but We're just going to get the essence of this, yeah? Claiming to be wise in their beliefs, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So right there is the heart of God's issue. It's not primarily the works that people do, but it's the belief of the heart. Belief dictates behavior. Belief determines behavior. And people fail to honor God, fail to give him thanks and recognition, credit and glory as he is God Almighty. 
God don't need to beg friends. As they say, God is God all by himself. He don't need nobody else. And by reason of his status as being God, he deserves honor. He deserves respect and reverence from everyone. And yet an exchange was made, exhorting the mortal, the the creation above the creator. That is backwards. So then we see What happens as they did not give God the honor due to him? What happens to a human being in that place? Verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. When, when people don't recognize God rightly for who he is, we don't recognize ourselves and each other. When we don't give God the honor and the glory that he is due, we do end up ultimately dishonoring ourselves and one another. It's the natural progression. It's the natural byproduct. And so this is what happened. God says, okay, you don't want to have nothing to do with me. I'm going to leave you to yourself. And your lusts, your desire to satisfy yourself. In verse 25, they exchanged the truth, beliefs, about God for a lie, false belief. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up that term again. Just imagine, and, and I'm sure there's been times where we've been, been before God in our sin and we're like, Lord, please don't give up on me. Please don't give up on me, Lord. I need you, Lord. I need your mercy and I need your grace. Other, I'm, I'm finished without you. Please, Lord, I know that I've been here just 1,000 times. Please don't give up on me, Lord. And yet, the verse says that he gave them up. He didn't give up on them, but he gave them up to dishonorable passions in verse 26. Dishonorable passions, the result of not honoring God. For their women exchanged natural relations. You know, it's an exchange taking place again. After exchanging the... The, the, the creature for the creator. Now all kinds of mad exchanges are happening. Exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Mano o mano. Men committing shameless Another word relating to honor, but just the opposite. Shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves 
the due penalty for their error. So we begin to see the fruit. We begin to see the product of bad beliefs being outworked. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. See that again for a third time. Gave them up to a debased what? Mind. To do what ought not to be done. And then the floodgates are open. And we see in the next verses 20 expressions of unrighteousness. Because people did not rightly honor God, reverence, revere God, did not have a a true and sincere gratitude to God for who he is. That's regarded as unrighteousness. It's regarded as unrighteousness. The unrighteousness spoken of in verse 18 The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. See, we talked about this at community group. These two terms encapture and encapsulate everyone's wrong. The moral and the immoral individuals. You know you've got some people, they just live like the devil and they don't care, right? Don't care. They will lie, they will rob, they will steal, they will deceive, they will commit fornication. They will just do their thing and they don't care. Them ones that keep the police busy up and down our streets. Sirens, blue lights. But they're not the only ones who God regards as sinners. You see, them legal crooks. (laughs) You you heard of blue-collar crime, right? You don't know about cufflink cufflink crime. Them legal crooks. I heard the other day that it was another MP up before the authorities with regards to expenses. Bankers and all manner. And the reality is that who knows what goes on behind closed doors? Why that husband is on the Valium, wife on the antidepressants, the alcohol cabinet always half empty. The physical, emotional abuse that goes on. The sexual abuse that goes on behind closed doors. The bitterness. The malice. The hatred. And you see, those two terms cover the moral and the immoral. The ungodly and immoral in their behavior... And yet those who may be moral and upright citizens, upstanding members of the community, but they're not righteous. 
meaning they are not in right relationship with God. It don't matter how good you are if you are not in right relationship with God. It's like two teams on a football pitch. Ah, oh, I felt it for Arsenal. Now, I don't even follow football, but I, I just happened to see that game. Bradford, I don't even know if Bradford are in a league. Any Arsenal supporters in there? Yeah, we've been interceding for you, fam. That the Lord is a great healer and he will heal your wounds, you know? <laughs> Bradford knocked Arsenal out the cup, out the league. I mean, that's what they call giant killing, right? David and Goliath. It don't matter how good you are if you're on the wrong team. Am I lying? Football fans, am I lying? It don't matter how good your star player is if he's on the wrong team. Who's, who's Arsenal's, like, top flight brother? See, no one... <laughs> I said, no one. <laughs> They're lacking. That's, that's part of the problem, isn't it? Wenger ain't been buying. Try to save money. <laughs> but it don't matter how good your top player is if he's on the wrong team. It don't matter how morally good we are if we're not in right standing with God and on his team. And that's why it goes on to say, who by their unrighteousness, in verse 18, suppress the truth. So the issue is a matter of righteousness and unrighteousness. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Expressions of their wrong relationship with God. And so then you could put a colon there. And then see all of 20 expressions of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips. I bet you never expected that one to be in there. Uh -uh. Gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent to authority, haughty, boastful. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, where's my you fat? Foolish, faithless, heartless. Certain man take that to be a, an anthem. I'm heartless. Yeah. Sorry for you. <laughs> Ruthless. Verse 32. Look again. Though they know, believe God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who do likewise. Activity completed. Okay. That means that I'm supposed to be finished. Keep it moving. 
They don't only do those things, but they give approval to those who practice them. And so, we see the issue is bad belief results in bad behavior. God may reward according to works, but he judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. And by reason of his judgment of the individual's heart, he then determines what team they're on and what manner of reward will be granted. Did you see yourself in that list? We say we're not that bad. Furthermore, we can't even stand to see other people doing those things. We hear about the things that people do and it, it grieves us. Just began to hear about this, this atrocity in Connecticut. Over 16 children killed randomly, indiscriminately. We hear, we, we, we hear of these things and we see these things and it grieves us. And yet, in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2, Paul says, hmm, you stand in judgment of others for what they do, but you've got no excuse because you're just as bad as them. You can't even stand to see other people do those things, especially when it's to you. And yet, you are just as bad. We want God to judge them. Hitler, Charles Manson, whoever. But the same judgment that we call upon them, we are directing toward ourselves. But most people don't expect that. Most people expect that God will be kind to us. God is patient. You know, God is is rich in kindness. We presume that we'll be okay. Not recognizing that God is holy and perfect in all his ways. And one violation of his will. One violation of his commandments means that we're guilty of breaking them all. How many links on an anchor chain do you have to break for the ship to drift away? Only one. And so verses 1 to 5, we hear this. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It's just a matter of degrees. It's just a matter of intensity. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, 
not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous, his righteous judgment will be revealed. Jesus is coming back and he's going to reward. And he will render to each one according to his works based on the fact that those works come from the heart. And to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory, not their own, seek for honor, not their own, and immortality, this is reference. This, this takes us back to earlier in, in chapter 1. Remember, they dishonored God. They did not give thanks. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for mere mortal. To those who are seeking God's glory and God's honor, and a recognition of God's immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey what? Unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. Why? Because it comes forth from an evil heart. the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. So, God rewards works but judges the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Who can know it? Who can know the depths of its depravity? I'm sure there's been times in our lives where we've all surprised ourselves at the madness that we've done, the sin we've committed. We've surprised our, even surprised ourselves. How did I find myself in this place? Can't believe that I would have done that, that I would have said that. Which is why in John 3, Jesus said, you must be born again. A phrase that was so overused, we stopped using it. Jesus said, we must be born again. And that's the regeneration of our hearts, the renewing of our hearts. Our spirits being made new. Through faith in Christ. As that takes place in the life of an individual, we change teams. We go from being on the team of the unrighteous to becoming righteous. And because of that, we can expect 
a righteous reward unto rejoicing. But that's only if our faith is in Christ Jesus and not in ourselves and not in our goodness. It's only if we recognize however good I think I am, however good I am compared to anyone else, you know what? I'm on the wrong, I'm, I'm on the unrighteous team. My very goodness is polluted by the sinfulness of my heart. I do good things for wrong reasons because I'm proud and I want attention. I don't want people to see me and rate me and pat me on the back and give me approval. Self-seeking. And yet God changes our hearts through faith in the gospel. That gospel that is Paul's priority to proclaim and preach. Because it is the power of God to save. And it is the only means by which we experience and expect a great reward. And so for all of us who have put our faith in the gospel, we can rejoice. We can look forward to the coming of Christ because we know we will be rewarded because we are righteous. Not righteous through our own endeavors and efforts, but Christ's righteousness Credited to us. And so we're rewarded because of him. And as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we will stand before the Lord and cast down our crowns, our, our rewards before him. Big chunks of gold ching, 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 flinging them down at his feet because we know that it's only by his grace his goodness God's good outweighs our bad on the scales God puts us on the scales one side Jesus and his good outweighs our bad And we are declared righteous. And so, there may be a few here today who have not put your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've even been going to church for ages. But thought that, you know, God would be kind and forbearing. And he'd give you a squeeze. Because he knows that you're not that bad. Well, he knows that you're not that bad. He knows you're rotten. <laughs> and yet he gave his son who lived a sinless life and died a criminal's death in order that all who believe put their faith in him can have a clean record, a new heart and be rewarded with eternal life. Amen? Put your trust in Jesus. He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We deserve nothing from you but wrath. We deserve nothing from you but judgment. Because we were insolent, 
unsubmissive to your authority. Lord, we hated you in our attitudes of heart and actions, Lord. Even, Lord, when we've said, yeah, me and God are cool, I love God, we neglected to realize that we actually loved ourselves more and that you're a jealous God and you will have no other gods before or besides you, including ourselves. Lord, we thank you because truly you are the definition and epitome of that which is good. You are good through and through. And we see this demonstrated to us, Lord, in that you gave your son for us, though we deserved him not. Thank you, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for the fact that you give us new life in your son. A new identity, a new record, spotless, flawless record. And through Christ, we're able to bring glory to your name. And you would even reward us for that, Lord, even though we don't deserve that. And so, Lord, we do pray for all those who have yet to come to a submitted conviction of faith. They've yet to repent and turn from their self-seeking, self-glorification, excusing of self, and put their trust in Christ alone. We pray, Lord, that you would help them, that you'd open the eyes of their understanding, that you'd help them to appreciate, Lord, the, the fact that there is no reward for rejoicing anywhere else other than in Christ. We can never do enough work to make ourselves right with you. Christ has paid the bill. Help us, Father, as we look forward to the coming of your Son. For your glory and for your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.